Good morning again. Good to see you all. I hope that you all are, are doing well, having a good summer so far, and not melting. So that's, that's good. Um, we're going to be in the Psalms this morning and for the next few weeks uh, for our summer, summer series, all the way till about the beginning of September. To that point, we'll begin in Exodus. So roughly around eight weeks in in the Psalms. But before we get started looking at at Psalm 1, I I quickly want to address, um, and and in that quickness is not to make light of it, uh, want to address the the big news that came down this week. Um, What was it? Was it Friday? Yeah, Friday. Um, And that is the Supreme Court's ruling, the overturning of Roe versus Wade and Casey, um, truly monumental. Um, if you know history, uh, I believe it was 1973 when Roe versus Wade was, was made the, 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 not the law of the land, but the ruling of the land, um, where abortion was not just allowed, but advocated throughout the country, where roughly over 60 million babies have been aborted. And now this changes that law, or changes that ruling, and saying it was completely unconstitutional. And so we, this is a day that Christians for decades now have been longing for, looking for, and never thought that it would even come. um, This is huge. And we should, as Christians, be truly grateful and thankful. The Proverbs tell us in Proverbs 21 that when justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous. It is a joy, so we shall rejoice. But that same proverb also says that it is a terror to evildoers. And so as Christians, we want to be sober-minded and self-controlled. We want to pray for those who have been blinded by such evil. And they would come to Christ, come to the light, the gospel would be preached to them in this time. So thank you for praying. Continue to pray. The work has still just begun. It still continues to be done, even though with this, this, uh, this ruling. So we look at Psalms this morning. We're going to turn to the Psalms. Throughout history, throughout the church history, the church has loved the Psalms. Israel loved the Psalms. Um, it was part of their worship. It should be part of our worship. It's something that we should hold close to us. And I think we do. I think we keep it close to us. I think you all cherish the the Psalms and and even in maybe those days where we just have just quick moments to to spend in God's Word, often we turn to the Psalms. We want to be comforted. We want to be exhorted. We want to be encouraged. We want to be taught. And these Psalms, they... They teach us how to be thankful. They teach us to, to look to, to God. It teaches us to worship the Lord and to give thanks to Him for all that He has given us, but not just for the things that He has given us, but it teaches us to be thankful for God Himself, to be thankful for Him, for who He is, for His character, for his nature. They teach us how to worship. They teach us how to 
respond to God properly. And that the priority of worship is to the glory of God, and that is our purpose as God's people is to bring glory to Him. The Psalms teach us about obedience. They teach us about doctrine. They teach us worship. They teach us devotion. They teach us about suffering and, and joy and love and emotions. And we turn to the Psalms for those things. We turn to the Psalms in our, in our gatherings, in our songs, in our readings, and in our prayers because we relate to them. We relate to the Psalms in our, in our, in our corporate experience, but, but, but also in our individual experience because what we see in the Psalms is the highs and lows of life when following the Lord. And as we look at Psalm 1 this morning, we're going to begin to see that reality. So let's look now to Psalm 1, and together we'll read verse, starting in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And this is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. Unlike other psalms, Psalm 1 is not titled. I mean, it certainly has the italics there of the, of the editors, but it's not titled. It doesn't even tell us who the author is. It's pretty safe to say that it was David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, who wrote Psalm 1. And if you spend enough time in the Psalms, you'll begin to see why Psalm 1 is Psalm 1. Psalm 1 serves somewhat as the title of the whole Psalter together. It, it sums up the whole 150 psalms. It also serves in some ways as a six-verse summary of the whole Bible, where we see the theme of the blessed man versus the wicked man that runs throughout the whole Bible. Psalm 1 shows us who God is. It shows us who God is, and it shows us who we are. It shows us what the Lord expects of us, as well as showing us what blessing is. This is known as one of the Psalms of wisdom, and it reads sort of like a proverb, a wisdom psalm that shows us what true blessedness is before the Lord. So be wise in these things, 
and you will be blessed, or that is the blessed man. Psalm 1 advocates true wisdom. And what we know, wisdom truly comes from the Lord and from His Word. And that a person who lives wisely under the authority of God's Word and under God's sovereign authority, then we'll see who is truly blessed. Proverbs 1.7, seems like we're quoting a lot of Proverbs this morning. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Think about that. The humility. Fools despise wisdom. They despise such teaching. They ignore this. They discount it. They write it off. They count it as meaningless or, or, or nothing or something else. They despise wisdom and instruction, but the fear of the Lord, the believing of this, trusting, following God's word, is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So here's the, the reverse of that. The fear of the Lord is the beginning no longer of just knowledge, but also wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One and insight. The fear of the Lord is reverence and humility toward the Lord. It's glad submission to His authority. It's not just acknowledgement. It's just not a nod of the, of the, of the head or a tip of the hat to, to Him or to His authority but it has built within it the fear of the Lord and emotion response as well of love and reverence and devotion. Wisdom is knowing the Lord. It's fearing the Lord. It's living underneath His authority gladly, joyfully. And what Psalm 1 tells us is that in that glad submission to His authority, is where we experience blessing of such. Psalm 1 is showing us the way of the righteous one, the wise one. A person that follows the Lord in all of his ways and lives according to the righteousness of the Lord. When we look at the psalm through, through the lens then of the, the New Testament, we see the hope of the gospel built right into this wonderfully beautiful psalm. And it beautifully pictures the truth that blessed is the righteous man. Now from the very beginning, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. And what I'm saying here is this one key will help us understand this psalm of wisdom. Because I believe that ultimately what we see in Psalm 1 certainly showing us God's people who follow in these ways are blessed, but in it we see the fulfillment of Christ, that he truly is the blessed man who is righteous, who did not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but what was his delight? His delight was in the law of the Lord to which he meditated 
day and night. Psalm 1 is showing us Jesus, and it's also showing us ourselves. And here's why, because Jesus is the perfect example. We saw in Peter, 1 Peter, that he was our example in suffering, but he's also our example in righteousness, in perfect righteousness. He was perfectly obedient to God, the Father. He is righteous. He never walked, stood, sat in the ways of evil. And so we want to remember that as we unpack Psalm 1, verse by verse, that the blessed man is Christ. And we, who are in Adam, are the wicked man. But for those who have faith in him, because of him, we have been in given his righteousness, we have been imputed to us his righteousness, we become the blessed man as the redeemed in Christ that follow him. And so this is why we can find joy in Christ's righteousness. We find great joy in his imputed righteousness to us. Someone is not just telling us about morality in obedience, but it is pointing us to the gospel. It's pointing us to Christ. Verse 1 begins the contrast. So looking closer now with our binoculars to Psalm 1, verse 1 gives us the contrast, right? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And the contrast there in verse 1 is, or here in Psalm 1, excuse me, is, is obvious, right? It should be as, as, as stark as darkness is to, is to light. That's a little confusing in the summer because it stays light so long. But it's as, it's as stark as light and, and dark or the Sahara Desert to Mount Everest. It should be obvious to us the contrast here between the blessed man and the wicked man here in Psalm 1. The blessed man that we see here in Psalm 1 blows out of the water popular religion. Because being blessed does not necessarily mean wealthy. He does not say here that the blessed man is wealthy. And that's the definition of being blessed. He does not say that being blessed means of good health. Certainly these things are blessings of God. We truly thank him for that, but if he removes those things from us today, does that say that he is not good? It does not necessarily, being blessed doesn't necessarily mean being popular or famous. In fact, today we're starting to see more of the opposite of that, and certainly Christ is our example of that. It does not necessarily mean talented. Thank you, Lord. Does, it not, does not necessarily mean intelligence. So what does it mean then to be blessed? What does it mean then to be, to be blessed according to God's word? Well, the idea of blessed, I think, is what God has created us to be. I think it's as simple as the foundation of creation, that God created us as his creation to love him and to be obedient to him. And when we love him and we're obedient to him, then we are the ones who are blessed because we are satisfied in him alone. And when we're satisfied in him, then we find our 
joy in him. Not only in what he gives us, but we find joy in him, in who he is. His gifts are great. His gifts are wonderful. But he is so much better. The description of the the blessed man here in verse 1 comes to us from the very beginning of, of what he doesn't do. So this blessed man who's obedient and satisfied in the Lord, what he does not do. First, he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does this, he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, which means that he, he does not follow or does not allow themselves to be influenced by the world. There's a different path. The path that they are Walking is not the path that is set before them in the world. A path of mediocrity and laziness and given over to the flesh is not the path that the blessed man walks, does not walk the easy path paved by them. That we see the millions and millions walking on. He does not walk according to to human approval, but according to the approval of God, his Lord. To walk in the counsel of the ungodly is to consent to their wicked plots. Nor does he stand in the way of sinners. And of course, we love this trio, walk, stand, sit. It's kind of covering the whole bases there. Lying down, you're sleeping. That's it. The whole basis, while you're awake, you're alive, you're no longer doing these things. Does not stand in the way of sinners. Doesn't find rest. Doesn't find satisfaction or joy in the temporal alone. Or the joy or satisfaction in the desires of flesh. Doesn't let them rule them and control them. Rather, they're sober-minded and self-controlled. The tides, the tides of sensuality and debauchery and iniquity that are, that are all around us. Sin that is called good. It's promoted as normal. It's now demanded and coerced and even forced to agree that you must submit. You must agree. You must follow and to stand and not to stand in the way of sinners is to be above and beyond obedient to God's word despite that tidal wave surrounding us to stand in the way of sinners is to preserve and persevere in evil works lastly do not sit does not sit in the seat of scoffers it's become our favorite word of the past couple months. Thankful, thankful from Peter. This is to display a satisfaction again to rest, to sit, and what the lost delights in. Nor is it to scoff at righteousness or truth, but rather, brothers and sisters, we rejoice in righteousness. We rejoice in justice. We rejoice in 
beauty, all these things that God tells us what is good. We rejoice in them. We don't scoff at them. The world scoffs at a biblical ethic of marriage between a biological male and a biological female. The world scoffs at that. We rejoice in it. The world scoffs at life. We rejoice in it. So to sit in the seat of scoffers of the scornful, to sit in the seat of the scornful is to to agree and to teach and to promote the evil that they also practice. This is what the wicked, the scoffers, and the sinners do. They propagate evil and wickedness. So we, we really don't have to unpack this too much because we see this. We see examples of this all around. Anything that dishonors the name of the Lord, we, we see these things. However, I want you to think with me that all the places, think of all the places in our world today where you would not walk in, you would not stand in, nor would you sit. You wouldn't, in a, many ways, you wouldn't catch yourself, uh, you wouldn't be cut dead in those places, right? Think of those places and why. Why wouldn't we go to stupid places with stupid people at stupid times, right? Because we have enough intelligence or wisdom about us to understand that dumb things happen at those dumb times, at dumb places, when dumb people are there. And I mean wicked people are there. And, and that's the point. That's the position he's giving us here is that the, the, the blessed people don't just, don't, they don't just avoid those places, but they take no delight in them. They want nothing to, to do with those places. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have a heart for the lost and for those who are caught in them things and that we don't pray for them and we don't share the gospel with them and we don't give them a glass of cool water and food when they need it. That's not what that means. We don't have an arrogance above us thinking that we're above them, that we're greater than them because we are sinners. And outside of the grace and mercy of God, us too would be in those places. But by God's grace, we have the wisdom to not just avoid those places, but not to delight in them. And so here's the setup, right? The contrast here is be the blessed man. Don't sit there. Don't stand there. Don't find delight in these places. And if you are in Christ, this desire of a Christian is not just to become this morally upright person. If that's your goal, then you've lost Christianity. You found something else. Our goal is not to just become morally upright people according to some Christian ethic. That's lostness. That'll lead you straight to hell. But rather, we follow the righteous man who has gone before us, who did not sit, sit, uh, delight, or any of those places. We follow him. And our only, our blessedness is following that man. So as Christians, we still, we want to analyze our hearts and our minds and our souls because righteousness is the point. Analyze our hearts and areas of where we are walking, where we are standing, and where we may be sitting. 
Are we promoting, are you promoting in any way in your life wickedness? Are you voting with your clicks on your computers and your cell phones wickedness? Verse 2, we got to move on because I'm going to be really long because we're only in verse 2 and it's been 30 minutes or something. There's a clarity of joy. It says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law he meditates day and night. So instead of walking, standing, sitting in the ways of the world, the blessed man is, is doing something. Again, remember what I said. We're not, we're not just called to avoid these things or avoiding evil. Christians are not passive, but they are active. We are active in great spiritual work for truth and applying it to our lives. So instead... His delight is not in those things, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, not in the counsel of the wicked of the way of sinners or the seed of scoffers. And I love this word delight here because it doesn't just say he reads it. It doesn't just say that he uh, likes it, thinks it's a good historical document. It doesn't, doesn't say that, but it points to the inner desires of the, the heart of man and for joy what's in our hearts because that's where the battle begins right that's where the battle begins and ends for our affections and it's where it is won or lost delight blessed is the man who delights in the law of god we must understand that there is a difference between knowing god's word and delighting or loving finding joy in god's word so why would we delight or love the law of God? Because in the law of God, it is where we see who God is. Who God is. We see his nature. We see his character. We see his holiness. We see his righteousness. His revealed word. The scriptures, the Bible, this is how we know him. And then if you know him, then it's our highest of joys. He is the highest of all joys. Delight. Number two, he shows us then how to delight, and that is to meditate on God's word. Meditation, as we often think of, is because of other religions. Other religions, their idea of meditation is to empty yourself. Empty your mind, empty your soul, whatever it is. Empty your minds, rid it of everything. But in Christianity, meditation is different. Meditation is not about emptying ourselves or emptying our minds, but rather it's about filling our minds. We're filling our minds with God's word. We're filling ourselves with the, with the right thing to dwell on it, to study it, to contemplate upon it, to, to pray through, through God's word so that we will know it, we will believe it, and that the power of God's word as it sustains us, it would renew our hearts and our minds as Romans 12 tells us. 
To meditate literally means to mutter and murmur over and over again. You remember the days when you were studying for tests and maybe you had index cards and you were studying. You would say those things to yourself over and over, whether you're studying Spanish or something like that. And you would murmur those words or mutter those words to you over and over again, memorizing those, those vocabulary words or whatever it was, or math equations, because you wanted to meditate on them so that you would know them. You're putting them in your mind so you could pass the test so then you can just jettison it right after the test but not the same with God's word. And we put these things in our minds and, and on our hearts over and over again, and that brings delight because it's fixating us on Christ. It's fixating on Christ that we would dwell on him and we would know him. Think of it like this as a, as a dry sponge. You have a dry sponge and you have a bucket of water. You know what's coming next. You put the sponge into the water. What does the sponge do? The sponge, if it's a good sponge and you haven't ruined it, it will soak up the water. It'll soak up all the water it can if you leave it in there long enough. And the one who treasures God's word, who delights in God's word, is like a, a sponge when reading and studying God's word, the scripture, and hearing it taught to them. And then meditation is then taking that sponge and just wringing it out all over yourself by faith and walk in obedience in it. And for what purpose? Not just to know, but for delight. We meditate not just to take a test. We meditate so that we would delight. And in that delight produces obedience. So this is, the, this is the blessed man who delights and meditates on God's word. God's word for Christians isn't just a textbook or history. It's joy. It's, it's a source of delight. And this gives us, we have to have a desire then to study it and know it. We're not indifferent to God's word. To always be blessed is to be a student of God's word. In John chapter 6, after the crowds turned from Jesus, and the reason why they turned from Jesus is because Jesus wouldn't feed them anymore. Basically, you had your fill, your stomachs are full. He says, now eat me, the bread of life. And they all left him. They all, they all left him. And then Jesus turns to his disciples who were left and he asked them, are you going to leave me too? And Peter says, Lord, verse 68 in John chapter 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Brothers and sisters, the same question. Do we ask the same question that Peter, where else would we go? Where else could we go? Where else would we want to go? What else is truly better? Because we delight in the eternal words of life in Christ Jesus. And verse 3 illustrates the the, the blessed man, because he's a tree 
planted by streams of water, yielding fruit. Its leaf doesn't wither, and all he does, he prospers. It's a blessed man. So this is, a, this, is a, this is truly a blessed man, and there's five marks that he lists out for us here in this verse. First is the strength of a tree, right? It doesn't take a, a genius for us to figure out how strong a tree is. We love trees. Trees make good wood. Well, some do. And we use to build things. Holds things up. My whole house is wood. And trees has a lot of strength. They're strong. They're sturdy. They're always maturing. They're growing. They show signs of life. Unless it's dead, it shows signs of life. And that's the kind of tree. That's what we want to be. We want to be trees, strong, with deep roots. And the second mark, he says that this tree that's strong, it draws its strength from where? From streams of waters. Now, for us, we have water almost anywhere. We can access water just about anywhere. But this is a vivid illustration in the Middle East. Because most of the Middle East is what? Desert. It's dry. It's arid. There's nothing there. And because of that, what is it? It's dry because it's lacking water. And what becomes very, I mean, very apparent, right? Here's the stark contrast there in the Middle East is that in particularly Israel, in the region of the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee, is a very fruitful area. They can grow almost just about anything. It's like the breadbasket of the whole Middle East. Very fertile soil. Land flowing with milk and honey. Right? So, so here where there's, are there's rivers that are feeding lakes, and around these waters that are moving, there are lush green areas. And why? Because water is essential to life. And these streams of water, this fresh water, this flowing water is essential to flourishing of the trees, for trees to be strong and strengthened. So trees around the water, they would be strong. And what would they do? They would, they would produce fruit. Bigger and stronger trees compared to trees that are not by water. It's a huge difference. May not, we don't see it too much around here, but particularly in the desert, you can see those differences. And just as the difference between the blessed man and the wicked man, it's obvious that tree has no water. That's obvious. Or that tree has lots of water. And what does he mean by the streams of water? It means our sorrow our souls, our minds are, are grounded. They're the tree, right? It's deeply rooted in something. It's deeply rooted in the living water. The living water of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 4, the story of the woman of the well, Jesus says to that woman, I will give you living water. I'll give you living water. Why? Because he is the source of the streams of water. In John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What do we see here? 
streams of water. That he is the light. He is the word of God. He is, was in the beginning with God. All things were made with him. And nothing was made that was not made by him. He is the light of men. Streams of water. And so the blessed man is one who is rooted in Christ, the source of the streams of living water, finding their joy and their satisfaction in him alone, no matter what happens. Facing trials, facing suffering, the blessed man can persevere and endure because they're planted in rich, deep source of water, Christ. Who is constantly nourishing us through his word. So what strengthens the blessed? What matures us? What roots us to be strong in life? The streams of living water in Christ alone. Mark 3 is that we are strengthened to produce fruits. The strong tree is not just planted and strong, but produces fruit. So this is a fruit-bearing tree. It's not like a useless pine tree. Right? I mean, you can make, they're not useless, they're, they're used for things. But this tree produces fruit, right? And this fruit is produced in season, which speaks of the providence of God. Like God's will and God's work in our lives to produce fruit. And fruit that is produced in a season is according to God's divine decree. He gives the fruit. And that fruit isn't just for the tree, but the fruit is for others. The fruit is a blessing for others. The strong tree who is drawing from living waters of Christ is to be a blessing to others. The blessed man grows and flourishes in the word of God and produces fruit to do what? To give it away for the success and for the joy of others. But that fruit, fruit that we produce by, by God's grace is, is fruit that is good for us as well because it shows, shows signs that we're growing in Christ, that we're loving the word, and that we're praying, and that we're desiring uh, for others to grow and to be discipled, and that ourselves are growing as a disciple. And that we too are showing the fruits of the Spirit from Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Not meant just for ourselves, but for others. Mark number four is to be strengthened and sustained. It says that its leaf does not wither. This is perseverance. It's not just strong, but it remains strong. It endures. It perseveres until the end. And the last mark is that we would be strengthened to prosper or flourish. All right, this, this resets again this, what the idea of what success is and what blessedness is. Because we already said what, it, what it's not necessarily. We said it that in, in the very beginning. But what he's telling us what prosperity is for Christians is not in a worldly sense, but in a spiritual sense and that spiritual spirituality works itself in our out in our lives but it's not for worldly treasures and worldly gifts and worldly blessings but spiritually and that all our endeavors then in those ways will flourish and grow in christ and don't we see 
those, those promises in the New Testament. We talked about those in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that he's given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. That's his promise, right? That we will prosper in Christ. I don't know about you, but this is truly the success that I want. Remember what Jesus says, John 10.10. 10. Notice the parallel between Psalm 1 and John. That the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's prospering. That's the definition of success that we are to have. Looking at verse 4, now he illustrates the wicked. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff, like the wind blows away. They're not strong. Their source of strength is sand. It's not by streams of, of, of water. There's no lasting fruit. They're not producing any fruit. They will not persevere, nor will they prosper. They may prosper in the world and have the presence of what worldly prosperity looks like, but spiritually before the Lord, they are wicked old and they are dead and they are like the chaff that the wind drives away and that's an interesting illustration the chaff like husks that surround the wheat when the wheat was harvested the farmers would have to separate the wheat from the husk sort of like shelling a peanut right you have a husk on the outside you don't want to eat that part you want to eat the nut in the inside but these farmers they would take they would use the wind smart be smart about it, right? Picking each little piece of wheat, you'd be there forever. But they would take the wheat and they would throw it up in the air and the wind would separate it after it has dried out. It'd separate the, the wheat from the chaff. The wheat would fall because it was heavy and the chaff would blow away by the wind because it was lighter. And again, we have the contrast between the goodness of the wheat and the uselessness of the chaff that the wind drives away and will ultimately be burnt. The blessed man is, is a strong, grounded tree producing fruit that is able to stand the winds of, of adversity and will also be able to stand in judgment, but not so for the wicked man because they are weak, they are hollow, they are shallow, and they will be blown away. Here's what John the Baptist preached in Luke chapter 3. He said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. He, Christ, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork, this is the illustration that I just described, is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff will be burnt with an unquenchable fire. This is judgment on the wicked, but speaks of the fruitless work of the wicked. They're not the wheat. They're the chaff that is burnt. Think of all the things that, that, that people around us, and we're tempted to, to do ourselves, is that they're pouring their lives into. And some of it is certainly a lot of sin, but there's others who are also pouring their life into a lot of things that are good. In a, in, a, in a sense around us, we would say that that's good. Good, it's noble, it's heroic. 
somewhat beautiful, right? It's for the betterment of mankind, and we can even applaud it, and they can even be, be honored and appreciated for it, and then we can give God some glory for it. However, in those things, if they are not done in faith, then they are not righteousness. They are sin. It's not producing lasting fruit, nor any kind of righteousness that can save them. And the point right here is very clear, that humanity's greatest need is not a righteousness that they think they can achieve or have already achieved, but it's an other righteousness before the Lord. We see the contrast again, right? The blessed man, Jesus Christ, who's perfectly obedient to God's word, that he delighted in. He's the perfect picture of the tree planted by streams of water who prospered perfectly on the cross, persevered on the cross, producing the fruit of salvation that blesses many. And then the wicked, everyone else, the ones whom he died for, his enemies, weak, hollow, with no fruit. And the outcome, lastly, we see in the word, therefore, in verse 5 and 6, that the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the, sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the outcome. And this all-important psalm, coming to a conclusion, right, the summary of the whole Psalter, the theme of, of the whole Bible, the idea of the whole Bible, that the wicked will not stand in judgment. This isn't an isolated verse. This verse doesn't stand on its own, but it's been running throughout all of Scripture, that the wicked will not stand in judgment. There is no defense on their own behalf that they can make before a holy God that can achieve salvation or righteousness. And the fact is that the judgment will come. Judgment will come for the wicked. And in the final judgment, God will condemn all the wicked to eternal judgment, eternal punishment in hell. And the wicked is very clear. Who the wicked are, the Bible is very clear on it. Ephesians 2.1 And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Romans 6.23, all have sinned and fallen short to the glory of God. Here's the contrast. Sinners will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. In the coming judgment, the wicked will be separated from the righteous and condemned. It will not stand with the righteous. Look at the hope there in verse 6. The Lord knows. Well, you can contemplate that for a lifetime, that the Lord knows, that God, who is sovereign, all-knowing, knows all that you do. He knows all our good and bad. He knows all of our, all of our thoughts, and He knows all of our actions. That's pretty scary. That's pretty frightful. But what this verse is telling us here. What really is scary is that God knows the righteous. 
not just knows us, but he knows the righteous. And we have to reconcile ourselves to that truth. Because deep down, we know ourselves, and the Bible reads us like a book here. It's reading us. That outside of Christ, we are not the blessed man. We're the wicked man. There's none of us that can say that we are the righteous that the Lord knows outside of Christ. And the Lord knows that we are not the righteous ones because we are dead in our trespasses and sin, that we all have fallen short of His glory. But the Lord knows the righteousness of who? Christ. Romans 3. For all of sin falls short of the glory of God. We, we just talked about that. It's our condition, our natural state of who we are. But in Christ, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. How is righteousness then achieved? by wicked man, but by faith in Christ. But by faith in the one whom God put forward, that blessed man, whom God put forward as a propitiation, right, who satisfied God's wrath completely and fully on your behalf by his blood. We put our faith in him. And this was to show God's righteousness. Who's the blessed man? Christ is to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness in the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So if we're reading Psalm 1 thinking that if we do these things, that Psalm 1 is telling us that we should be in this ethical manner and we think that that's when it's going to save us, then you've missed it because it's Christ who is the righteous one and it's him we place our faith so that we have his righteousness. We are given his righteousness so that God might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. So without Christ, not justified by grace through the blood in Christ, then you are not counted as righteous, but rather of the wicked there in Psalm 1. But in Christ, we are in Christ. When we believe in Christ, when we have faith in Christ, when he regenerates us, we call those his elect, and we are given his righteousness. We'll read the text later at the end of our gathering, but from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, imputed to us is his righteousness because he has bore the wrath of judgment upon the cross. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes, Romans 3, right, faith, believes in him, should not perish, death, judgment of the wicked, but have eternal life prosperity. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. What did the blessed man do? He produced fruit. But in order for the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already 
because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And, is, and this is the judgment. The light is coming to the world. And people loved darkness, right? They loved darkness. We loved darkness. We struggle still in our love for darkness. That's why we, we pray this morning. That's why our brother led us in prayer this morning as a, as a, a corporate confession that we love darkness. Lord, forgive us. rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked hates the things of the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, faith, so that it may be clearly seen that in his works has been carried out. Brothers and sisters, Psalm 1 certainly tells us about the ethic of what a blessed man is, but Psalm 1 is fulfilled perfectly in Jesus Christ. It is a description of him contrasted to everyone else. A contrast of his faithfulness rather than our own. And Psalm 1 is shouting to you. It is shouting to me. It is shouting to the unbeliever this morning to trust and follow Christ. He is the righteous man. He is the only way to have true joy is found in his imputed righteousness. And that then, for us, is what it means to be blessed. Blessed is the man who follows the righteousness of Christ. We are blessed through Christ because of his faithfulness and his obedience, even to death on a cross. We, those who are Christ, if you're a Christian, you were once the wicked man. But now only through Christ, any one of us is the blessed man. We don't realize this. Sometimes we, we forget this, that we are the blessed man because we're following Christ. That that is our new position before God. And that those streams of living water, his word, let it flow underneath you and continue to strengthen you to produce fruit and prosper and where your leaf will not wither. In some sense, it's almost every day we have to believe this. We have to have faith and believe and to drink from the living water each morning to delight in the things that are true not the things that are false to rely on his righteousness the righteousness of christ because that's our position and then walk and sit and stand worthy in the gospel because he has transformed us he has made us new so psalm 1 is showing us christ and showing us his righteousness and showing us how we find joy and delight in Christ's righteousness and not of our own. And all God's people say...